Politics Uncensored with Ali Milani on Fubar Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Politics Uncensored. I'm Ali Milani, your host here on Fubar Radio, and we have a big show coming up for you today. Uh, we're going to be speaking to Matt Hutchinson, Communications Director at Spare Room, and Connor O'Shea, Policy and Campaigns Manager for Generation Rent. But we've also got Nabila Maulana joining us, Labour Councillor in Sheffield and Chair of Young Labour. Today we're, we're discussing a number of new stories, not least the housing crises, uh, renters crisis, mortgage crisis, inflation crisis. There are so many crises happening uh, around the country, but it's all okay because I've seen that the Prime Minister has gone to IKEA, presumably to, to DIY some form of functional government, uh, to tell us that he's totally on it and it's going to be 100% okay. So that puts everything at rest and we can all rest easy knowing that Rishi and his mates are on it. Before we get into all of that, we have, like I said, Councillor Nabila Maulana, Labour Councillor in Sheffield and Chair of Young Labour. Thank you so much for joining us, Maulana, uh, Nabila. Thanks for having me, Ali. You can hear me okay. So this week, um, as we do every week, we go through some of the top stories uh, happening around the country and we begin with none other. And I promise this is going to be one of the last times I talk about this man this week. I've been on my um, I Told You So tour around the country. Uh, Boris Johnson, MPs have backed a report that found Boris Johnson deliberately misled MPs over lockdown parties at Downing Street. The Commons voted overwhelmingly in support of the report by 354 to 7. The cross-party committee's report had been had found that Mr. Johnson committed repeated offences when he said COVID rules had been had been followed at number ten at all times. Now, three hundred fifty-four to seven, which means the majority of the Conservatives were hiding somewhere, some up north in a fridge, others probably in their constituency behind their couches. Nabila, what do you make of this? Boris Johnson has finally gone. Do you think this is the end of his career? Um, you'd like to think so, but sadly, I think. The trajectory of um, Boris Johnson's life has shown us that actually this will probably lead him to have even more um, notoriety than before. He's probably going to be invited onto talk shows. We saw that he's got his own column in, um, I think it was the Mail on Sunday or Mail on Saturday. Something, the Daily Mail, yeah. There we go. Um, And he's being paid apparently a million pounds for it. And, you know, this man who presided over the COVID pandemic saw the deaths of thousands and thousands of people who, you know, it's, it's just shocking, really. Um, I think everywhere he's gone, he's left disaster in his wake and mm-hmm. somehow he's managed to continuously fall upwards. So, um, no. Well, so I think, first of all, someone at the Daily Mail needs to have their head checked, paying him anywhere near a million pounds for a column uh, that requires a serious welfare check on someone at the Daily Mail. But I want to talk about this failing upwards thing because, you know, Boris John, this, this, the, the, Scandal around the COVID rules and the misleading of Parliament would, some might think, you know, this is a mistake, a one-off mistake that he's made. But Boris Johnson, throughout his career, has consistently lied, has consistently had allegations of mispropriety, uh, impropriety, whether that's as a journalist making up quotes, whether that's being sacked from uh, by Michael Howard for lying about an affair. He went on to put that ridiculous number on the side of a bus during the Brexit campaign, uh, the Garden Bridge project, all the way to the things that he said about Muslim women uh, and and single mothers. And so this is a man that's continuously lied, had impropriety everywhere he goes, has damaged public life in every office he's held, but continuously gotten promoted. What does that say about poli- our politics? That someone like that just keeps failing upwards, keeps getting promoted despite proving who he is time and time again. 
I mean, I think the last 13 years, um, if, you know, nothing else has shown us that British politics is fundamentally broken. But I think what's particularly interesting in Boris Johnson's case is that actually what you see is people coming together to protect um, their own class and their own class interests. You know, if Boris Johnson was, well, you or me, we'd never be given that many chances. We'd never have the opportunity to have someone else clear up our messes and to carry on failing upwards. It just wouldn't be an option. We'd be kicked out at the first hurdle. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, yes, it says a lot about the British political system, but I think what it also shows is that there's a class of people willing to come together and support their own because it benefits their own interests. Um, and that's something that yeah. I think you know, it's the majority would never have the access to. It's this conveyor belt of politicians, isn't it? There's this, there's this sort of Oxbridge, Etonian class of politicians that continuously pump out these these sort of people who believe that they were born to rule and it locks out ordinary people. I mean, it's called the House of Commons. It's anything but... Um, you know, the average age in there is, well, 165 or something like that. Um, and it, do you not think that, you know, Boris Johnson aside, he's kind of old news. I'm hoping that this is the final nail in his career and we can kind of move on from Boris Johnson. But what we need to not do is not learn the lessons of Boris Johnson um, because he's he's someone that the media have loved because he equals clicks and views and he's entertaining the political class has loved continuously promoted him so we need to have a serious self-reflection all of us in politics the system the media everybody about how we have allowed us you know a, a climate in which someone like him could succeed it's unless we get a handle on the set people we're sending into westminster nothing's going to change surely right I mean, I completely agree. And I mean, sadly, I think I'd have to disagree with, you know, being able to move on from Boris Johnson. I think, you know, Boris Johnson's history has shown us that he will allow us to do anything but that. Let me dream, Nabila. (laughs) (laughs) If, I mean, I just wouldn't want to lie to you, Ali. But I think, you know, I completely agree when we talk about politicians and the kind of people we send into Parliament, you know, and again, like I keep pointing to the last 13 years of Tory government, you know, if this was, if MPs were actually to be held accountable by the people they're meant to serve, I you'd like to think that we wouldn't have a Tory government that just kept getting elected again and again and again, and mm. each time they've they've left a worse you know we're we're living in the worst cost of living crisis, in I don't know how many decades. My generation is the first generation in a hundred years where we're going to be worse off than our parents. We're going to have worse living standards than our parents. And, you know, like you said earlier, we're living in a climate crisis. There's a housing crisis, there's a financial crisis. You know, the news from the Bank of England today means that we might be pushed into a recession. And it's the working people, the majority of this country, who are going to be paying the price. Whilst mm-hmm. MPs like Rishi Sunak, like Suella Breverman, and like whoever else, you know, it's not going to affect them. And quite yeah. frankly, I don't think they could care less. Like we've seen that politicians don't actually go into Westminster to serve. If they did, Nadine Dorries would have actually resigned when she said she was going to resign rather than unresigning. Yeah. Which I didn't know there was an option. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't think anyone knows what Baroness. I don't think anyone knows what Nadine Doris is doing, most of all Nadine Doris. I, I the I, I'm really interested in what you're saying because we've said it on the show previously. Um I had Michael Crick here when we were talking about the Labour selections process, and essentially what we were saying is unless we can't keep sending the same people to Westminster and expecting a different result. And and you spoke about Rishi Sunak and others not understanding the sort of crisis that we face. The reality is that they've never lived a day in the life of someone like myself, someone like you, 
millions of ordinary folk around this country. So it's not just that they're unwilling. To a certain extent, they're unable. They don't have the experiences. They don't know what life is like for most people. Uh, and so unless we send people to Westminster that do, um, you know, those issues aren't going to be fixed. And I don't think this is just a conservative problem. Like I said, we had Michael here who definitely wouldn't call himself a lefty talking about the crisis and, and the real broken Labour Party selections. But while we're talking about sending people to Westminster, we must forg not forget that it's not just the House of Commons, but it's uh, it's the Lords as well. And that brings us to story number two, which is that Labour is reportedly devising a plan to appoint dozens of peers to the House of Lords to prevent a Keir Starmer government being stymied by the upper chamber there are 174 labor peers making 22 percent uh making up 22 percent of the lords compared with 263 conservatives and 183 unaligned cross across uh, bench peers so labor sources have told the times that the party is considering appointing more full-time peers of working age to attend the lords most days to scrutinize and vote on legislation the quote was, there would be lots of opportunities for conservative opposition with a bigger, younger group of peers to make life difficult for us in the Lords while respecting convention. That was what one source told the Times. Now, let's remember, this is an unelected chamber. Um, we are one of few democracies to have an unelected upper chamber. Um, and one that I seem to remember Kistama saying he was going to abolish. Well, Ali, I think the Labour Party has had um, a interesting time of the way they've, um, I suppose, proceeded with their previous policy promises and mm -hmm. previous pledges they've made. Um, we've heard a lot about fiscal responsibility and, uh, you know, a party of government and all the rest of it. And I mean, look, like, am I going to go out and canvass for Labour at the next general election? I am. Um, but have I also been, I suppose, deeply disappointed by some of the things that have come out from the party, especially from these anonymous spokespeople who just keep appearing at every turn <laughs> um which is you know it's incredibly strange for what should be a democratically um run party where you think that the person giving these comments would be someone who was willing to i suppose own up to these comments rather than you know some mm. random person even if we ignore labor for a second just you know to to save you from getting kicked out of the party um the this conversation around an unelected chamber is just ridiculous that in a 21st century democracy we call ourselves the mother of all parliaments how can we have an unelected chamber which by the way includes i think we're the only country that includes um uh religious people in an elected chamber other than iran right so you know how can how can any sort of progressive government throw loads of people into an unelected chamber I mean, personally, I would like to see, um, you know, the House of Lords abolished as Labour has previously committed to. Um, and I suppose the hope is that, you know, Labour find a way to to uphold that promise, because, you know, I I think it's hard enough to hold elected politicians to account, um, never mind appointed members who sit in the House of Lords essentially forever. Um, I, I do think it's just a, you know, it's a slightly ridiculous way yeah. to do politics. And, and look, uh, I hope that Labour uh, would find a way to to hold on to that pledge of abolishing the House of Lords eventually. I, I think everybody understands the fact that uh, no, a Keir Starmer government wouldn't want to be stymied by Conservative peers, unelected peers um, in, in the House of Lords. Um, and so wanting to avoid that makes sense, I think. But what most folks would want is, you know, we want to improve our democracy. Um, and this is something that previous, both Keir Starmer, I believe, uh, and 
even Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn, previous Labour leaders um, and, and Labour administrations have said um, they want uh, to abolish. So this is something to keep an eye on. And we come to our third and final story, which is going to be the theme of the show today. And that is that interest rates are expected to rise or have risen again uh, after UK inflation remained much higher than expected for the fourth month in a row. So inflation, which measures the rate of rising prices, was stuck at 8.7% in May. In a heated exchange at PMQs, Rishi Sunak and Labour leader Keir Starmer clashed over who was to blame. Sakir accused the Conservatives uh, of being to blame for the mortgage catastrophe, but Prime Minister Mr Sunak hit back, citing the global macroeconomic situation and saying he had spent tens of billions supporting people with the cost of living crisis. We've seen the Bank of England today, I think, uh, in a record raise the interest rates up from 4.5% to 5%. Now, I think it's important for listeners to understand the context of this, Nabila, before I bring you in. The Bank of England uh, has independence, uh, and the independence was brought about uh, as a result of what was the stated arguments was that they didn't want the government of the day to to control interest rates as a maneuver for electioneering and campaigning. So they didn't want a government to drop or raise interest rates uh, as it comes to an election campaign. They wanted the fiscal policy to have some level of continuity. Uh, And as inflation rates rise, the Bank of England commonly... Um, sorry, yeah, as, as inflation rises, the Bank of England commonly raises interest rates as a way to drive demand down and to deal with inflation. The problem is many critics are, are, are saying, many economists and critics are saying, well, interest rates aren't, or inflation isn't high because loads of people have loads of money in their pocket and there's just a huge amount of demand. They're high as a result uh, of a number of economic policies of the Conservatives, things like the Ukraine crises and other things. But what we are now seeing is a two-pronged crisis, particularly in the housing market, which is why I want to bring you in, Nabila. We are seeing mortgage rates go up for homeowners, and we're seeing rents rents skyrocket for renters. Do you think, as I do, this actually quietly may be the thing that does the Conservatives in, this housing crisis? Because it's not only hitting renters, which let's be likely, it's likely to look like people like me and you, who you who are working age, uh, young families, people who've never been able to get on the housing ladder because we've been locked out. But it's now hitting homeowners and people with mortgages who traditionally, you would imagine, are more likely to vote Conservative. So could this be the nail in a Conservative gov- government's coffin? I mean, I really, really like to think so. You know, I mean, this housing crisis has been decades in the making. Um, Like you said, you know, we know that young people can't even dream of um, owning a house, never mind renting a house in, renting a whole house is just, it's nearly impossible. Even if you're making, you know, what's considered a decent salary, um, 30,000 or upwards, and you're still struggling to find a place. This is, you know, massively exacerbated if you're living and working in London. Um, so I'd like to think that, you know, now that it's also hitting people with mortgages, that this, you know, this will be the final nail in the coffin for the Conservatives. But I think it's, I mean, I can hope, right? We can all hope that this is what does it for mm. the Conservatives. But, you know, what we've also seen is the Conservatives have this real ability to sort of like pull, turn, manage to turn yeah. things around in the very, very last minute. I think we've had we had someone on the show who, who referred to the Conservatives as, if nothing, just an ab- adaptable party of power. So they find ways okay. to, to, to win power. You're, you're the chair of Young Labour. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what's, in terms of young people, what's the mood and the anxiety out there with housing right now? Because it must be, you know, people like us... Uh, 
I'm not young labor anymore. I've aged out. This is tragic. But, you know, young people surely just can never envisage themselves owning a property. I mean, I think, like, I wouldn't even know where to start, actually, Ali, to talk about the housing crisis and the way it impacts young people. Like, we know the housing crisis affects you know, people right, almost right across the board, but it particularly affects young people in a way where, yes, we're not able to get on the housing market, but, you know, we're barely able to get on the renter's market. Mm -hmm. So many people in this country are one paycheck away from homelessness. You know, young people are most likely to be on precarious employment contracts. They're most likely to be exploited at work. Um, And it's just, and, you know, historically, young people have also voted for the Labour Party or for what they've considered to be progressive parties and I think you know the Tory party are going to find themselves in a state where I suppose you know the people who currently vote for them aren't going to be around to vote for them anymore and young people are going to you know make up are going to grow up essentially grow older Mm -hmm. and like their children for instance if they can afford to have children are also going to grow up seeing their parents really struggle to have got themselves on the housing market and to have got themselves into any kind of secure housing Mm -hmm. because I think what's important to see here is like yes the cost of rising rent and that the conservatives could do something about it but it's also about housing conditions right and like the complete lack of housing completely you know with schemes like right to buy and you know we know it was very much an ideological decision like the Thatcher government completely decimated council housing Mm -hmm. and like we've seen their new policy about what was it making sure that it's white British people who are first on the list um, to obtain housing now. That was Michael Gove's policy that said he wanted to prioritise British nationals uh, onto the council housing policy. And I think, look, you're right. I think, like, it's it's almost, it's such a ridiculous policy on lots of fronts, but, you know, it's meaningless to have British people on the top of the priority list if there are no housing to move them into. You know, it makes no difference if you're first on the list or 17th on the list. If the house doesn't exist, the house never going to get the house doesn't exist. And I think one of the biggest tragedies is, like you said, this generation is one of the first generations in 100 years to be worse off than than the parents that came before them. But also one of the promises that they're told, one of these stories that they're told uh, from very young, which is that if you work hard, if you study hard, if 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 you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, then you will have the promise of a safe and affordable home waiting for you on the other end. That promise has clearly been shattered by the Conservative uh, government and something they're going to have to deal with uh, in the coming weeks, months and years. That was Councillor Nabila Molana. Thank you so much, Nabila, for joining us. Labour Councillor in Sheffield and Chair of Young Labour. We're going to stay on this topic of housing, of homeowners, of renters. Uh, We're going to talk about the Renters Reform Bill later on um, with our guest, uh, Connor O'Shea, Policy and Public Affairs Manager at at Generation Rent. But joining us next, we have Matt Hutchinson, Communications Director at Spare Room. He's going to be joining us after this. Fubar Radio presents As Handsome As You Imagine. What did you have for breakfast that morning? Almost certainly a pie. For breakfast? Yeah, because we started really, really early, right? At the butchers. Yeah. We started proper early. Yeah. like seven o'clock. I would have had at least six pies. A day? A day. That is a lot of pies. No, no, because we sold them at the shop. That is a legitimate answer to the question, who ate all the pies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From 1pm every Monday... 
Okay, welcome back, everybody. We have Matt Hutchinson joining us, Communications Director at Spare Room. We have been talking so far today, amongst other things, about the Bank of England raising the interest rates for the 13th time, uh, now up to 5%, a record, uh, I think, in the last, at least for the last decade. It was announced yesterday that the UK's inflation had stayed at 8.7% in May, despite the hopes that it may have fallen. As a result of this, over a million households across Britain are expected to lose at least 20 of their disposable income due to the surge in mortgage costs, according to the IFS. This ongoing housing crisis obviously affects homeowners, but it also affects renters. And that's what we want to talk about next with Matt Hutchinson, like I said, Communications Director at Spare Room. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. If you could, um, this is obviously a, a more complex and difficult issue uh, than than those who aren't in the know or, or directly within the sector will understand. Can you give a brief overview of what's happening and why it's affecting the housing crisis so badly? Yeah, and I think the, the point really we're at now is that the rental market is in a position we've never seen it in before. You know, we've been running spare room nearly 20 years um, and we've never seen a rental market like this. Um, just you know, since May 2019, sort of going back to a, a relatively normal pre-pandemic year, across the UK, like rents have gone up by nearly 20%. Demand for rooms has gone up by 40%, but supply has fallen by 26%. And that's like you know, in the space of four years, that's a huge shift. We've seen the number of people looking for rooms soar. We've seen the amount of supply really dwindle, and it's causing such a bottleneck for people trying to find places to live. Yeah, and look, so this this seems to be um, a two pronged crisis because pre- we've had a re- we've had a rental crisis at least in London for as long as I can remember. But it seems like the inflation and uh, the rise in interest rates uh, are causing crisis on two fronts, and essentially mortgage mortgage owners and homeowners are seeing their mortgage prices soar, and as a result, as a lot of mortgage owners place that. Uh, that fee onto the rental market that's affecting the rental market as well what I think is really important for listeners to understand is as inflation goes up the Bank of England which has independence from government is raising interest rates because it believes it wants to reduce demand Uh, and it believes as interest rates go up demand drops and therefore that should cause inflation to come down now many have argued that inflation isn't isn't actually because everybody has loads of money in their pockets um and there's there's too much demand but there's other factors including ukraine um, and other things in our economy what do you think the government needs to do to get a handle on this crisis so i think this goes back like you said earlier we've had a housing crisis in london for a long time but we've had a housing crisis in the uk for a, a long time as well and i think one of the underlying factors is that we took a decision a couple of decades ago to start funding people rather than things so we give people money through help to buy we give people money through housing benefit we we help people pay ever increasing rents ever increasing mortgage costs we don't help bring those things down so if we keep supporting people to pay those things those things will only increase now of course people need support and housing benefit is an absolute essential but it should only be a safety net for a temporary amount of time while people are in crisis it shouldn't be propping up the housing market in some bits of the country and so what what are um what, what I'm curious about is you know are there other countries that have policies that are working particularly well we've heard you know rent controls in New York have have been discussed uh, and whether similar things could be done in London and other cities across the UK uh, I know in Spain there was a huge housing campaign um that really took the mayoralty of I think Barcelona by storm um are there things being done abroad that we need to look at as possible solutions to cracking this crisis So I think the interesting thing is, and this is the example that always comes up when people talk about rents, is the German sort of model where there's more investment in the private rented sector from 
bigger players so kind of pension funds and you know big big players that expect a short-term rise in their gains but over a long period and we've gone through a period in the uk of having a lot of buy-to-let landlords coming into the market to buy a property expecting it to go up in value quickly because they do and also being able to rent it out um, and it's a much more short-term strategy and government decided sort of six seven years ago to start curbing buy-to-let a little bit um, and they've gradually squeezed quite a lot of buy-to-let landlords out of the market but it's not really been replaced with anything else can you so just explain this... what buy-to-let is for people who might not so know? So buy-to-let is if you if you already own a home that you live in or you rent a home you live in, you buy a second property with the intention of renting it out. It's an investment, mm-hmm. you know, you get a particular kind of mortgage for it. It's a, a setup where you buy a property essentially to become a landlord. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and that has been a booming industry in the UK for the last sort of, 20 years. And we've had, you know, a, a landlord population that's made up of people who maybe own one or two properties as investments, or maybe they moved in with their partner, kept the second place and rented it out. And very sort of small, small operations um, compared to the other side of it, which is, you know, investment companies that have lots and lots of properties and rent them out. And what that meant was that the market was sort of able to fluctuate based on very, very small transactions. Um, and actually, I think the government rightly decided it would be useful to have a much more stable rental market but what they've done is squeeze out the smaller landlords without really finding anything else to replace them. Yeah, this, this um, I think it, one of the things within the political sphere that has kicked off has been this sort of landlordism and whether that has had a serious crisis. Um, and I think when people talk about landlordism in, in general, what they don't mean is the one person that has a second house, but these people that have six, seven, eight properties all across London um, and use them essentially as investments and that keeps other people off the property ladder inflames prices and other things is that something that you think is an issue these these individuals that might own multiple properties across cities particularly london but uh outside of london as well and is that is that a problem that the government needs to look at i mean what we need we do need landlords we need somebody to rent our properties and i think part of the the complication we have with any conversation about tenants and landlords in this country is it gets very very inflamed and very sort of volatile quite quickly because there's a lot of negative sentiment towards landlords um, and those conversations descend into chaos pretty quickly and I think that's the reason we're in the mess we're in is so much of the housing problem is very difficult there's planning there's landlords there's investment there's there's so many different pieces and then there's national versus local concerns yeah. and so I, I suspect but do you not think poly- do you not think there's 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 a lot of validity to that argument because uh, as far as let's say my generation right I'm I'm 28 29 or no, 29 now about to turn 29 and the the view from my generation is we work hard we've done everything else the previous generation have done but the average I think the, the data suggests that the average down payment on a house in London is about 115,000 pounds around around that figure and so what we end up doing is spending more than 50% of our monthly income going to someone else's investment someone else's house who's not really doing anything productive in terms of within the economy arguably otherwise you know they will argue different and that what we end up doing is propping up a landlord system where they get richer we spend more than half of our income in on their investment and we're locked out of any sort of property lap for the foreseeable future do you not think there's some some merit to that argument yeah and uh, there's also just the fact that you know that, that previous generation, when they first bought properties, the average house probably cost three or four times the average salary, whereas now it's going to be more like 10, 15 yeah. sometimes in London. Uh, and it's that affordability issue. And 
Like renting has a really important part to play in the market in terms of it's flexible. So when you need to upsize, you upsize. When you downsize, you downsize. You can move easily. You can move quickly. Uh, that's the theory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you buy when you want to settle down. And if all of the tenures were available and affordable and within people's reach, you would just choose to do what suited you at the time. But we've ended up sort of investing in this idea of being a homeowning nation. Um, and property prices have gone up and gone up and gone up and not come down. So now we're sort of encouraged, if we can afford it, to overinvest in property because it's the best place to put your money. And that's turned homes into a commodity from all angles. And it, mm. it yeah. it's ended up with a situation where, you know, we have a whole generation who won't ever own a home. And the, the point nobody talks about is what happens when that generation retires and doesn't have an asset they can sell or can downsize. You know, there will be a whole generation potentially requiring housing benefit from the mm. point they retire, which would be an absolute yeah. ticking time bomb for Treasury. But nobody's yeah. thinking that far ahead. Yeah, I'm really glad you put it in that cycle because it's not just, you know, we not only will we not have that asset to kind of base us um, and that asset to, 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 to with, live within and have that sort of stability. But like you said, when you're younger and you have to move and downsize, upgrade, whatever you do within the rental market, it's easier. The older you get, the more difficult it gets, the more roots you have. You might have a family, you might have young kids. So bouncing between properties becomes becomes more difficult. I'm, I'm glad you framed it in that holistic way. The other question I have, one of the things that has always bothered me as a, as, as a young lad, uh, you know, my family experienced homelessness uh particularly my mum as i went to university um during the austerity years and you know we would walk around london and see these huge high rises of flats and houses often empty and the data suggests there's anywhere between 30,000 to 100,000 30,000 is the figure from city hall i think of homes that lie empty in london these are perfectly valid habitable homes that are either bought offshore by by you know foreign citizens and they leave them empty whether they want to register companies or other things um is that not part of the problem yes we need to build more but there are perfectly valid habitable properties in london and across the country that are just left empty yeah and when i was a kid you know the news was all about um welsh villages that were full of english people's holiday cottages that were being burnt you know welsh people were setting fire to english people's holiday cottages because you know londoners were moving into these little Welsh villages, buying holiday cottages, but never really living there. And it mm. totally changed those environments. So we're now finding the same thing is happening to London with overseas money is people are buying properties to leave empty or to use occasionally. And, and it's absolutely true. There's, there's two conversations to be had about that and they work on all, all sorts of levels. And the first one is, yes, we need to build more houses because we don't. But the second is to look at the housing stock we've got and empty properties is a huge part of that. But there are also, in England alone, something like 20 million empty bedrooms in people's properties. And the reason for that is that under-occupation amongst owner-occupiers, homeowners, is something like 52-53%. There's a lot of empty bedrooms. Um, that if So is that people... people that are living in houses larger than what they would need, essentially? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. People who have bedrooms they don't use. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of reasons for that. People like guests, people have home offices, but there's no suggestion people shouldn't have those. But... If people are about to face a big hike in their mortgage rates and they need some extra income to cope with the cost of living and we have a massive shortage of places for young people to rent, if just a few percent of those people, say three or four percent of those people decided to take in a lodger, you create a city the size of Liverpool, you know, mm-hmm. Just yeah. in, in terms of stock that's already there, that doesn't need planning, doesn't need bricks, doesn't need anything. Mm. So there's a multitude of ways in which this crisis can be dealt with from existing stock in terms of bedrooms and empty properties all the way to building more. Um, there's been a bit of conversation around Greenbelt and whether we should relax 
um, the the sort of restrictions local authorities give on building on green belts. Do you have a position on that? No, not as such. But I think I think what that sparks is the really interesting conversation about national versus local when it comes to housing conversations because if you stand on a national stage and wave a sign around saying let's build houses you're going to get a standing ovation if you stand on a local stage and say we're going to build some houses here you get petitions you get you know because people people think we need housing and they want it but people are reluctant about having houses built near their house Mm -hmm. and part of that is traditional nimbyism but also it's really important at times where we've gone through such uh, a chronic underfunding of services if you live somewhere and you can't get a school place that you want, you can't get a dentist appointment, you can't get a doctor's appointment, the you know, the trains are full by the time you get on them in the morning. You don't want another thousand people moving in around the corner because the services just can't cope. And I think I think it's what we build, but it's also where we build and and how we manage those conversations because as a nation we want more housing and we accept that. But as a bunch of communities, it's a slightly trickier conversation. Yeah, and look, um, the show is called Politics Uncensored, so I'm 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 interested in what sort of political outcome this might have. I was um, uh, I was sat in a in a green room of a of a of a media sort of office, which will go unnamed to protect the individuals. But the conversation was amongst uh, you know some people within the Conservative Party, some people in the Labour Party, and some journalists. And it seemed like the consensus was that this housing crisis could cost the Conservatives government because we're just at the beginning of what is going to be a really sharply felt crisis, not just by one group that might or might not vote Labour or Conservative, but by all groups, mortgage owners and the rental housing, sort of the rental sector. Do you think we're at the beginning of a serious political crisis? I think the Conservative Party is at the beginning of a political crisis. It's been in one for a while. like how that plays out, it's hard to know. But but as it pertains that, particularly to housing, well, I think the the thing that I find most interesting about that is we we carry out quite a lot of surveys of our users on Spectrum to find out how people feel, and you'd presume that at the moment, like we know homeowners aren't happy. That's just that's front page news every day. Um, towards the end of last year, when the market was at its absolute worst in terms of demand against supply, we surveyed landlords and we surveyed tenants and we said, do you think, current, do you have faith in current government's housing policy? And 95% of tenants said no, which we sort of expected, but 95% is still pretty high. Yeah. The thing that shocked us was that 94% of landlords said no. So if this market isn't working for landlords or tenants, that surprised or me. I didn't think then, that then who is it working there. for? Yeah, that surprised me. I didn't think the mortgage, that they would be as high as 94%. So they're going to get hit from all sides. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the, the issue we have is that politics to me now feels a bit X factor in that people chuck policies out hoping people, they'll be popular and then they can implement the ones that are most popular that might get them elected in a year or two. This housing crisis is a 25-year problem. Mm-hmm. You need serious long-term thinking to sort this out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, shall we give people a bit more money now or not? Is yeah. it really going to solve it? Yeah, so lastly, what I want to hear is some of the, the, the human effects. Obviously, you got you work at Spare Room, you're the communications director there, so you'll hear firsthand the sort of experiences of what people are going through. I always like on this show to not just, you know, we talk a lot now about statistics numbers, we've talked 94% and, you know, 30,000 empty, empty flats, but these are real people. What are some of the stories you're hearing of, you know, what this crisis means in real terms for people? Like what we're hearing, on one hand, it's just some of the, the ridiculous scenarios people are faced with when they're trying to 
find somewhere to rent is the amount of competition, you know, just going to a viewing and it being an open viewing with a queue around the block. And that's just not something you see in the rental market until yeah. recently. I've heard people having to put down money to view properties. Like you have to pay 200 quid or something just to view a property. And like, you know, that, that just shouldn't be happening. Yeah. Um, and, and people getting into bidding wars, you know, kind of thing you, you would associate with buying a house, you mm-hmm. know, an open viewing, outbidding somebody else, but just not part of the rental world really until recently. Um, and just how sort of how little hope some people have. And I think that the worrying thing about it, like, and, and this sort of speaks on a personal level, but on a national level too, is that people are telling us that then and we have statistics and I won't give you the stats because you want the personal side, mm-hmm. but like people saying to us, I want to move house. But I'm not going to because I can't face this rental market. I can't face paying £300 a month more for less space. And so people are turning down jobs mm-hmm. because they don't want to face the rental market. And people are staying put who want to move. And the thing about that, when you take that back up to the national level, is we are we have a government, and I suspect any colour of government coming in in the next couple of years is going to say to us, jobs and growth is what's going to get us out of this. The main reason people move is jobs. And if people aren't moving because they can't, we end up with an inflexible workforce. We end up with people not getting upskilled, not developing their careers. And so jobs and growth as a strategy to get us out of it mm-hmm. isn't going to work because we don't have that flexibility, that mobility, that sort of general upskilling of the nation that that requires. And I think that's a sad thing because if you have a generation who worry about ownership and worry about all of the stuff we've just talked about, mm-hmm. um, but are also being held back by being trapped, then I, I just think it's, I think it's a sad it's a sad thing. Yeah. Home is, I want to talk about home, not just houses. Like home should be a secure, affordable, solid foundation for you to go out and be whoever you want to be. Go and be you. Like mm-hmm. go be productive, be happy, whatever that means to you. Home shouldn't be the single biggest thing you think about. It's like, you know, it's starting to weigh people down. And mm-hmm. I think that's not only dangerous, but incredibly sad. Yeah, and I definitely think there's a huge amount of anxiety. I mean, we, we've had conversations in my in my house where, you know, we we've talked about the possibility of home home ownership, and both both me my, myself and my partner both around the same age, our generation just don't see owning a home or getting onto the property ladder as anything realistic. At least, and it, you know, well into our forties. Um, last question for you, Matt. Let's pretend I was Keir Starmer or Keir Starmer was sat next to me and there was a realistic opportunity for a Labour government at the next election. So you're talking directly to Keir Starmer. I don't quite have the hair or the quiff to to, to go with it, but but let's pretend I'm him. And you had my complete ear and attention and there were one, two, three things that you wanted me to do to help the housing crisis. What would you say to me? So I'd say let's let's think in sort of three stages. First stage, just immediate, short-term, what can we do? All these empty properties, all the extra space in people's homes, incentivize people to use the space we have, like make more of the space we've got. There's ways of doing that. There's incentives. There's just general messaging you can put out. It's a win-win for people at the moment. Um, the second point is to look further down the line. Like The idea that you are implementing policy now that will actually play out when our kids grow up, You know, the idea of seeing ahead and planning for it, Like that has to happen. We can't just have one or two year cycles of housing policy now. Just can't happen. Um, And the third thing I think is to find that middle ground of being able to incentivize people to be whatever kind of landlords we decide are right, whether it's institutional landlords, small landlords, we need people to rent our properties at the moment. Um, And the worry is that people are, if if a landlord sells a property, it's most of them are going into 
holiday lets, short-term lets. There's been something like a, you know, 300% increase in holiday lets in the last five years, the number of holiday let companies registered. Um, we don't have a hotel room crisis. We have a housing crisis. Short, short lets are great. Holiday lets are great. We need them. We like them. We use them. But so much stock is drifting out of rentals into holiday lets now. Is that, that like Airbnb? Yeah, and, and all of the different kind holiday cottages, other short term. Mm. It's not just an Airbnb thing. It's more that 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 model really, um, and that's great. But we need there to be more incentive to rent to people who want to live in an area than people who want to visit an area. Okay, all right. Thank you so much. That was Matt Hutchinson, communications director at Spare Room, talking to us about the ongoing housing crisis and how it's affecting homeowners and renters. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Fubar Radio presents Access All Areas. We have got the lovely money from The Apprentice. Lord Sugar's pretty big on Twitter, isn't he? And I know he has, he, I mean, he's a big blocker. You get blocked quite easily by, by Lord Sugar. Um, do you find you're able to have quite a frank and deep, good conversation with him? No, I think criticism is a very different thing, though, to having those honest conversations. And I mm-hmm. think he does respect transparency and honesty and upfrontness. Um, but as my mum always says, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Every Wednesday from 6pm. Fubar Radio. Welcome back to the studio. This is Ali Milani, host of Politics Uncensored on Fubar Radio. I am now joined in the studio by Connor O'Shea, Policy and Public Affairs Manager at Generation Rent. Connor, thank you so much for joining us. Ali Lester, good afternoon. So, you know... Besides, in previously, you told me you were an Arsenal fan, so we're going to keep things strictly on topic as to avoid any fights on here. Uh, tell us a little bit about Generation Rent and what it is you guys do. Uh, so Generation Rent is a, um, it's basically an advocacy group. We work for the rights of private renters across this country. We're a national organisation. Um, I'm obviously based in London, but we do do stuff all over the country. Um, we try and represent the voices of the 14 million private renters that exist. Um, we would do that through a number of means. We go into Parliament, we lobby sort of in that level. We do it at a local authority level. And we also, um, we have lots of supporters. We have people who sign up to our campaigns and we, we do our best to amplify their voices. Mm-hmm. And so, look, I think what we've been talking about today is, is you know, the Bank of England raising interest rates, the impact that has on mortgages and ultimately the impact that has on renters. I've seen a lot of the conversations on Twitter and in the political world today has largely been on um, on mortgage owners and homeowners but i'm quite interested in renters which is the the, what you deal with we had a massive problem leading into this even before the the rise in interest rates we had a problem with mortgage owners uh, with renters how bad is the situation right now it's really really rough um and that's why i'm so pleased that you've got me on and to be fair to some other outlets they have as well today because you thought that the interest rate rise has come in and they will immediately think of owner occupiers people who live in their homes and pay their mortgages and obviously things are difficult for them but that has a knock-on impact on the renters as well and that's not a part of the conversation that's very often amplified so that's why I'm very pleased to be here mm-hmm. um, but ultimately even without today's news and even without the mortgage rate crisis that we're seeing it's a really really difficult time to be a private renter um, affordability is basically at uh, unreachable levels there's not really any more that landlords can do to, to, to put on top of the rent that people can still afford to pay mm-hmm. um, those problems are especially acute in the cities but they're absolutely the case across the country on all sort of types of private renters yeah one of the things i spoke to matt about and 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 i'm interested in your take on it was for him it was my i wanted to give him my perspective right i'm 20 turning 29 
soon and you know myself and i think my generation can't really see ourselves climbing the the owning the housing ladder we're going to be renters at least i think into our 40s and the way that we see it is that we work just as hard as generations before us and the older generations who own houses sometimes harder two three jobs um and the reality is often more than half of the income that comes into our through our paychecks more than half the income that comes to us goes out to someone else who often it's a second third fourth fifth home right so is this idea of landlordism and what i mean by landlordism is really these these monopoly of houses where people buy a second third fourth home and rent it out just as a as an investment is this not part of the problem well um we live in a in a world in a sort of in 2023, the housing stock in the United Kingdom is in a very funny spot. So from the start of the millennium until about 2016, the PRS, the private rented sector, doubled in size. So essentially what was happening was all these properties were leaving other tenure types, like from the hands of owner occupiers, people who live in their homes, uh, and specifically from social housing, and ended up in the hands of private landlords. And that rate of change, the sort of 16 years doubling, is unsustainable, right? So you cannot have that amount of uh, property moving from one side to the other mm-hmm. that that swiftly, that often, without feeling an impact of it. Mm-hmm. So we now live in a world where the private rented sector is much larger than certainly legislation pertaining to it has ever anticipated it being and ever sort of um, ever really designed to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we see this. Yeah, but, he might also talk to us, to us about holiday lets. Can you give us your perspective on that as well and how that's impacting the market and the reality for renters? Sure. I mean, it's a further um, example of what I was just sort of talking about. The changes of tenure, mm. these houses who are in, to be honest, anywhere. So you think of holiday lets, you think of your Cornwalls and your Devons and yeah. your Norfolk. When we're talking about holiday lets, for people who might not know what we're talking about, is really short-term uh, renting of properties, Airbnb and Absolutely. other things. For Airbnb is the on. perfect example yeah. of that, but there's plenty of others, you know, sort yeah, of holiday yeah. cottages. It's exactly. sort of the popular conception of what that is. Yeah. But it happens all the time in places and like what London that does and Manchester is, everywhere as well. I think what it's clear for people to understand is what that does is it takes that house off the market. Yeah. Right? So that's a house, and if that's done on a larger scale, what we see is lots of houses are taken off the market and that compounds the housing crisis. Most certainly. And that is exactly what's happening. And it's, it's really acute in these areas where, you know, people who are in Cornwall or Devon, for example, um, realise that they can make more in a couple of weeks in the summer to tourists than they can to a family who wants to live there year round. And that obviously has a decimating impact on communities. And that's something that people find it very easy to understand. And that's a huge problem that we do need to address. And Generation Mm -hmm. Rent is working on that. But that's happening in the cities as well. Um, So, for example, Camden lost more properties to Airbnb in 2022 than its housing target. So then the amount of houses they were supposed to introduce to the supply, which basically means that even if you're building houses and lots of places around this country are not, and you've heard that conversation go on quite a lot Mm. over the last couple of weeks, um, even when people are building houses, they're being taken out immediately and put into an Airbnb world where no family, no person who wants to contribute to the community can have them. And that's a really damaging impact of, of... and it's yeah. another sort of symptom of the crisis that we're seeing across this country. Yeah, the, the other one that, that really bothers me, and I spoke to Matt again about it, was the number of houses that are empty. So I think there's a real crisis in London specifically. I'll talk about London. And I, I, I know sometimes us Londoners are a bit London-centric, but there you go. Um, well, there, there are, I think the estimate from City Hall was 30,000. Um, 
uh, properties in London that are empty currently. Uh, other other figures have it close to 100,000. But what you often see is these oligarchs, companies, rich folk essentially, that buy properties in London and then leave them empty. That's a serious problem, right? When you've got a huge high rise in London where 40% of the apartments and flats are empty and you have homeless people at the foot of that building, that's a serious problem that needs to be dealt with. It's a huge problem. And look, we live in a country where there's not enough housing for the people, right? That's just the state of play. We need to be building way more housing than we are across the country in all sort of tenure types, specifically, of course, social and affordable housing. But generally speaking, there's just not enough. And then when you have the numbers that you've been talking about and the City Hall have been talking about of just how many of these homes are empty, it just compounds on top of that the sort yeah. of sense of injustice that people feel. Yeah. And that's completely true of private renters at the moment. They really feel like the deal that they're getting is not fair and not just. Yeah, so we, we've spoken about sort of the rising rates, interest rates, mortgages, the rise in rents, uh, holiday lets, and empty properties. Is there anything else, real big issues that you think that we're missing in the political sphere or media that's causing the renters issue or are those the big ones? They are the big ones, but I mean, they are really, really big ones, right? Yeah. <laughs> they're, not, I mean, they're massive. Yeah, it's not like we've missed, um, no, we've missed any out. The, the problem of supply is, is a killer. Mm-hmm. We really need to be building more houses everywhere. And the holiday let stuff that we were talking about of hemorrhaging out as many as you build is a huge problem. Yeah. But ultimately, some places aren't losing these to holiday lets and they're still not building anything. Yeah, I think we saw Michael Gove this week and, and Nabila mentioned it in, in our week on Wrapped. Um, Michael Gove's suggested policy that uh, the way to deal with this issue of, of demand is we're going to prioritise British nationals um, in, in, in terms of council housing and, and, and public housing. Um, surely you must be just ripping your hair out going, just build more and we won't have this problem. Absolutely right. I mean, we even saw it the other week with um, the declassification of selected licensing properties if you're housing asylum seekers. Yeah. So the notion that, you know, somebody whose passport is worth less than somebody else who should be living in worse conditions is not the solution to this problem. Yeah. And frankly, it's, it's moving the problem even further away than where it should be. Yeah, so speaking of Gov, we've got the Renters Reform Act, uh, and, and one, of the, one of the things that's been hot on the topic is the Renters Reform Bill. So um, this is a proposed law that would see the scrapping of Section 21 no-fault evictions, making it illegal for landlords and agents to refuse to rent properties to people who receive benefits and, or have children creating a national landlord register through a new property portal, introducing new grounds for evictions for landlords who generally want to sell their properties uh, and move uh, back in. Uh, but before this becomes law, uh, it has to go through the House of Commons. Uh, what's your view on the Renters Reform Bill? But this is uh, what Generation Rent is really working on at the moment. This, is this seems of- like a really good bill. I'm told Theresa May put this out, which surprises me. Uh, well, this is... It's all quite ambiguous, right? Right. So it was... Uh, initially a, a Theresa May idea but it never got anywhere um, it was in the Conservative Party manifesto 2019 to have section 21 abolished mm-hmm. section 21 is is something that really underpins a lot of the problems in the private rented sector these are no fault evictions yeah so yeah. they are evictions where essentially in any private rented contract basically in this country there's something baked into it which means if the landlord for any reason wants to get rid of you you have a um, Section 21 notice handed over. It's no fault. It says on there, you know, you haven't done anything wrong, but you have to leave your home in just eight weeks. Right. And not only does that provide, obviously, insecurity for people who live in these homes, it also means that they're not empowered. So if, for example, there's a huge structural problem in your home and you need something changed, or if there's dampened mould, or if the kitchen's not working, you know, all this sort of stuff that we've all seen in private rentals before, 
you don't feel empowered to go to your landlord and mm -hmm. say, please fix this because your landlord can drop you a section 21. Yeah. You can be out. And we know that people, especially in such a desperate situation for private renters, will take up that yeah. mantle and go in. So the market is currently really skewed towards the landlords. And that goes along with the fact that the regulations are really skewed towards the landlords. Yeah, and The renters reform bill, it will help. Mm -hmm. There are some elements of it that are really positive, but there are some really gaping holes in it that are going to cause problems. Like what? So you referenced there the, the landlord need grounds. Yeah. So in order to swap out Section 21, basically, there are some reasons by which landlords can legitimately throw you out. Yeah. One of them is for sale, if they want to sell the property. One of them is for if they want to move their family members in. And there are a few others. Yeah. But essentially, they're not going to be enforced very strongly. So there's a backdoor element to this of they can... Yeah, it, it looks like it's going to be very easy to, to fudge that one now and end up I, now I'm seeing Theresa May's fingerprints but <laughs> look, with, uh, without my, my, my snide <laughs> remarks at Tories there's some really really positive things in here I think the scrapping of section 21 is really really positive but I re I'm you know the making it illegal for landlords and agents to refuse to rent properties to people who receive benefits or have children is also a huge problem because my family faced this when we were looking for housing um, and, and that is a huge problem that we're seeing in the, in the sector at the moment they just not give it to people who have benefits yeah. specifically right or have children you'll see on a lot of these adverts no dss is what yeah, it says yeah, yeah. and that's for that's people with benefits yeah. okay um, we'll be with that's not guaranteed so we need to really generation event and others will be fighting very hard to ensure that that stays in the bill so this is going through the uh, you know through the the parliamentary processes now i believe in parliament or or is a live debate in parliament it's really really important i think um that people know about it and fight for it and campaign for it and that's something generation rent is doing uh we're running out of time you've been brilliant i'm the time has sort of flown um I want to do something that I often do with our guests, and particularly I want to hear it from you. Pretend I'm Keir Starmer, and I've just, I'm going to win a general election uh, in the, uh, whenever that comes, uh, and I'm going to form the next uh, government. If you had one, two, three real big things to help fix or make better the, the, the rental crisis that people have in this country, what would you tell me to do? Let's oh. pretend we're, we're both gooners and we run each, to each <laughs> other at, at, at the Emirates. What would you tell me at to do? At the Arsenal. I've seen him there a couple of times, actually. Um, <laughs> So, number one, I think, would be to ensure that this legislation is through. So if it doesn't get through before the end, before this, the end of this parliament and we end up with a sort of dead bill, it would be incumbent on them to come in and legislate as swiftly as possible for renters because the conditions that, that are um, prevalent in the private rented sector at the moment are really difficult. That's number one. Um, the one thing that the bill doesn't address pretty much at all is affordability. So there's no provisions in there to ensure that um, rent goes down, things like that. Um, that is that must be a priority of the next government, no matter which colour. And I and think th let me just interrupt you. That no, quickly, that um, Sadiq Khan has st consistently come out and says he wants the powers to be able to introduce things like rent controls in London. Yep, Sadiq Khan has been a big advocate of it. Um, some of the other metro mayors have as well, but yeah. at the moment it's not a devolved power. Yeah. So it would have to be central government. Yeah. Um, that's and we've that seen rent controls work fairly well in New York and other cities, some cities in, in, in Europe as well, no? Yeah, there are a few. Um, it can be a mixed bag at times, right, yeah. um, rent control. And the thing about yeah, rent control mixed is that it has to be underpinned by number three to Mr. Starmer or yeah. whoever, whoever were to win the next election is um, ensure that houses are built. Ensure that those houses are built across the country. Ensure that they're built in places of need. Ensure that they're built, um, you know, with a genuinely affordable eye on things. And ensure that social housing is at the core of that. Because then you'll start to see a private rented sector that sort of caters for um, the people that want to be in the private rented sector as opposed to those who have to be. Brilliant. That was... 
Connor O'Shea, po- Policy and Public Affairs Manager at Generation at Rent, talking to us about the crisis, the housing crisis across the UK and how it's going to impact us moving forward. Connor, I'm going to ask you to stay in the studio for me right now because now we go on to our Word on the Street. This is my favourite segment every week uh, where we go onto the streets or our producers, our wonderful producers, go onto the streets of Islington and ask what real people think. Not that you're not a real person, Connor. Yeah. But, uh, so this week we asked them, with the Bank of Ingr- England set to increase interest rates again today what price increases have surprised slash annoyed you the most gas and electric olive oil the cost of the electric uh, along with the cost of food and everything else but the cost of the electric has been a bit beyond the joke it's almost tripled in price rail fares petrol and diesel paying your rent has gone up so much and that's obviously an absolute nightmare but little things that have just really got on my nerves because it all just adds up it's just like your daily food shop and go to buy a block of cheese and it's like four or five quid. Butter, it's so expensive. Chewing gum and train to travel. The cost of petrol prices, um, it's something that I've struggled with for a while now, having to commute to and from work. Uh, the increasing rise in rent uh, is really bad for young people, especially in London. Um, people are really struggling to find somewhere to live on their salary. Definitely property. So I'm, a, I'm an 80s child and for our parents it was like boom time. They could like be waitresses and still get a mortgage. Now like a two bed flat in London is like nearly a million pounds. Um, so the, my whole generation's priced out. There we go. Uh, you know... <laughs> We didn't. We didn't plan that, but it, it's worked out quite well. I think a lot of those were, other than the olive oil, um, a lot of that was on rent. And uh, as we spoke earlier, with over a million households across Britain are expected to lose at least twenty percent of their disposable income due to a surge in mortgage price costs, according to the IFS. It's very likely, is it not, Connor, that that twenty percent is going to be placed onto the renters. So as the mortgage prices go up, the landlords increasingly likely to increase rents also. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, there are a few caveats to that. So the one thing I would say is that only 40% of landlords have a mortgage. So the other 60% don't have a mortgage on those properties. Yeah. And you would like to think that they could not pass that cost onto the tenant. That's something that we would certainly call on them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but it remains to be seen whether that happens. And unfortunately, we do we do see that in times of economic crisis, that these pa- these are passed on to renters. Yeah. But renters have reached the peak of affordability. Renters can't afford anymore. You've heard yeah. however many people during that segment mentioned the rent as their sort yeah. of number one cost. Well, it's Generation not that, that, Rent did a survey yeah. at the end of last year, so before this, um, and the number one concern for people was paying the rent more yeah. than utility bills, more than anything else. Yeah. And we've seen that before. This is going to exacerbate it, but there's no space for renters yeah. to pay anymore. Well, I, I think it's the compounding of the problem now, and I think this is where, what we're going to end the show. And it's, you know, people are seeing food prices go up, and maybe you can cut back on food, but we've seen energy, crisis go, uh, energy prices go up. We're seeing petrol prices go up. We're seeing rents go up. And I think we have really hit our limit with the with this cost of living crisis and any increase in 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 the property market in renters or mortgage crisis is likely to really lead to us to a serious political situation where i think um and that's sort of been the theme of my show today that the political impacts will be serious for the conservative party um and i think you saw that in the anxiety of rishi sunak as he went to ikea today uh, and so whether that was the word in our street whether that was from um 
Matt from Spare Room or Connor from Generation Rent and, and Nabila who spoke to us uh, from the perspective of young labour, there is a serious cost of living crisis and the renters market, the mortgage market is likely to make that things significantly worse. I want to thank everybody for, for joining us on the show today. Matt Hutchinson, Communications Director at Spare Room. Connor O'Shea, thank you so much for joining us in the studio, Policy and Public Affairs uh, Manager for Generation Rent and Councillor Nabila Molana, Labour Councillor in Sheffield and Chair of Young Labour. Connor, where can people find you if they want to Keep up with your work. Uh, the Generation Rep website has got an absolute uh, rake of resources. Um, a big thing about knowing your rights that I would really recommend people who, I know it's a bit of a bleak note to end and I'm sorry, who might be finding themselves evicted or with, with huge rent increases, go to the Generation Rent website, generationrent.org, and there's a, a huge section on knowing your rights and what you can and can't do. That's really, really helpful, I think. So if ever, anyone listening needs needs those resources, they are there for you. If you can, I would really seriously suggest that you speak to your local MPs, your local parliamentarians about the Renters Reform Bill, write to them, make sure that they know how important this is and for your future. Um, We've had a great show, so again, thank you to Matt, thank you to Connor, thank you to Nabila. You can follow us on socials at Instagram, we're at Politics Uncensored. On Twitter, we are Politics Fubar. I am at Ali Milani UK. Thank you so much for joining us, and I will see everybody next week. Salams.